we went over to that meeting at the Trinity. And when it got to me, because it was an open meeting, I said, well, you know, my name's Mary. I'm just here to check things out. And a few people later, there was a guy that had a bow tie on. And he said his name, he's an alcoholic. And then he looked straight at me and he said, sweetheart, normal drinkers don't think about checking us out. Welcome to the Recovery Edge cast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. This is episode 16 of the Recovery Edge cast. Today we have Mary S. on the line. Mary has 34 years of sobriety and almost 35. It's a really amazing story and I know you guys are going to enjoy it. So without further delay, let's get it started. Welcome, Mary. Let's begin with your sober date. My sober date is November 23rd, 1985. How many years would that be then? Well, currently it's 34 years. God willing, I'll have 35 November 23rd. Wow, that's right, right around the corner. Not too far off. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Let's see. Well, I retired about four years ago. Um... My husband of 34 years um, died five and a half years ago. I have two kids. Um, One is 23. One is almost 29. um, So 28. And um, they're both, you know, gainfully employed. Yay. Mm -hmm. And I live, you know, with my uh, yellow lab Piper. And life is great. You know, I don't know what to say. I mean, I have a really, really good life. So um, I had a very successful career, and I'm happy not to be, you know, full-time, you know, fully working. I sit on some boards, and I'm often asked to advise on particularly real estate and commercial real estate. And, you know, that's and I have a lot of very good friends. I have a house in the mountains. I have a cabin in the mountains on a river. Um, you know, I love to, you know, road bike, fly fish, you know, swim in the summer, um, ski, hike. You know, there's life is full. And when the pandemic wasn't happening, I was traveling a lot. Oh. So, but actually, I enjoyed being at home. It's been great gardening and doing things like that. You know, you live life intentionally, right? Mm-hmm. So do you have a home group? Um, York Street 7 a.m. is what I would consider my home group. I mean, since the pandemic started, I've really only been going to Zoom meetings. So I go to a few different Zoom meetings, but 7 a.m. is my um, what I consider my home group. Well, you are vocally warmed up. Um, why don't you <laughs> tell us what it was like before, what happened, and what it's like now, starting as early as you'd like. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Um, I think, like, there's a lot of fellow alcoholics that started drinking in my teens, although I didn't have a lot of opportunity to really, it didn't really take off necessarily in my teens. teens. Um, I grew up interestingly, in a sober household. My father got sober when I was eight. 
and he went to AA. My mother was going to Al-Anon before my father even got sober, probably before I was born. And um, he started drinking alcoholically about a year before I was born. And so I grew up having AA meetings in my living room. And I think that that's the, you know, that was the um, beginning or the where the term home group came from because AA meetings were typically held in people's homes. Um, I even wrote a you know a paper when I was in high school about alcoholism, you know, debating whether it was hereditary or socially learned behavior. And of course, I can I did conclude that it was hereditary, although for some reason that just did not apply to me, and it just didn't kind of translate at the time. Um, in college, my drinking kind of ramped up, but given the fact that I graduated high school in 1968 and went to college and, you know, that year in 69 was Kent State, you know, I kind of took over. What took over for me was I became a hippie and I wouldn't say a radical, I'd just say a hippie. And so drinking kind of took a back seat for a while and, you know, I just switched addictions you know, to pot and hallucinogenics and stuff like that. So I was a hippie for several years, many, you know, probably three or four years. Um, you know, during my years of being a hippie, I was actually arrested and put in, in a minimum security prison for international drug smuggling. I smuggled pot or actually hash and hash oil from from Europe to Canada, and I got busted. Um, I was 22 years old, and so, and that was in Canada. And when I left Canada, and I I came to Colorado, I came back to Colorado because I went to college for a couple of years in college or in Colorado. And you know, I went to college. I dropped out. I went to college. Dropped out. Um, you know, when I came back to Colorado. I actually had bought a teepee from the Whole Earth Catalog. So, you know, I skinned the lodgepole pines with a girlfriend and had a teepee raising party. And I lived in my teepee for about five months until it got a little too cold. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to this log cabin that didn't have any running water or electricity, had an outhouse. It was actually so peaceful. It was really beautiful. But, um, you know, it was kind of, and also during that time, I, you know, was one of Celestial Seasoning's first employees. Oh, wow. And and so that was, you know, like back in the days of, you know, where they sold pot brownies, you know, behind the counter at the company store. You know, and so it was kind of during those years where I was like, okay, you know, I grew up my father became very successful when he stopped drinking. So I grew up privileged and here I was living in a cabin without any running water or electricity. And, you know, kind of just, yeah, I had to, you know, like split my own logs for, for heat and all of that. And I, I, at that point I started thinking, okay, do I want to live like this forever or do I want to live like I grew up? And I thought, okay, it's time for me to get serious. And so I went back to college hmm. and that's kind of where, again, instead of being a hippie, I was, you know, kind of trans transitioning 
into taking life more seriously. And, but my drinking really picked up again, you know, at that point. So mm. it's, it's kind of like the hiatus from the, you know, the hippie era of drugs back into, you know, drinking. And of course, then there were more adult drugs like cocaine that was kind of out there, but not necessarily then. Um, when I went back to school, I got my degree in accounting and finance, of course, all while, <clears throat> all while I was drinking. But at that time, of course, I didn't think I had a problem. I was just having fun. And all of, I chose my friends, as most of us do. We don't, we don't choose serious, sober friends. You know, we, <laughs> I chose friends that drank like me. So I could look around and say, I don't have a problem. You know, this is, mm-hmm. this is not an issue for me. Late in my 20s, although I will say that, that it, there were times still living in Boulder where, you know, my drinking was really, you know, I'd, I'd black out. And, you know, my roommate had one point said, you've got a problem, Mary. And I said, I don't have a problem. And she said, all right, I'll bet you that you can't stop drinking for three months. And this was the summer months. And it was a $100 bet, which was a lot of money to me and to her. And so I said, okay, you're on. I didn't drink for three months. Hmm. You know, it was like, yeah. I mean, I didn't go out either. How did you feel school. those three months? Do you remember? Well, I basically, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I don't recall feeling like, oh, God, I feel so much better. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was kind of like, because I'm white knuckling it, right? Right. So I I read three um, very, you know, uh, three intense books, Thornbirds, Shogun, and Trinity, all of which were 1,200 pages each. I read those three books in three months while I was going to school and working. Hmm. So I clearly filled my time. And basically to, you know, not drink, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when I, when I graduated, you know, from, and and got my degree, I ended up moving in my late twenties to Denver and I landed a good job. And, but my drinking continued to pick up. I mean, this is the young professionals, right? And so drinking and cocaine kind of went hand in hand. And I loved cocaine because I could drink and then do cocaine and have this sense of feeling sober so I could drink more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, during that time, you know, my, kind of my late twenties, you know, I would get glimpses of, you've got a problem, you know, drinking is a problem, but denial is so awesome to the addict, alcoholic, because I could have a really bad drunk and wake up the next day, just, you know, like terrified of, because of a blackout, not knowing what I had done, but, and I go, Oh God, you've got to do something about this. But then a day or two would go by where there were no really consequences. And I'd be like, hey, it wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. And I'd be off to the again. And I had, you know, during kind of my late 20s into my early 30s, I, you know, the blackouts were, were more frequent. There were way too many times that I woke up not knowing how I got home. 
and looked outside to see if my car was out there, often with two wheels up on the curb. You know, I was, you know, often waking up not sure where I was or even who I was with. You know, I I got my first DUI when I was 29. And, you know, I thought, okay, you know, this is bad. You know, this isn't a good thing. And, you know, I was ordered to go to AA meetings. So I went to one AA meeting. This was in Boulder. And I kind of looked around and I realized there were no telephones. Then nobody used last names. And it was like, you know, I had this person that was chairing sign my sheet that I had been to this meeting. And then from that point forward, I just had my friends sign the sheet. Because who was to know whether I went or not? So I didn't go to any other meetings. And then, you know, again, this same downward spiral. Now I'm working in commercial real estate. I landed a job where there was no limit to my income. It was really up to me about how much I could make. Because you're commission only, so you eat what you kill. And that was a goal of mine, was to be very financially successful. And so I finally had gotten that position where I had an opportunity to realize financial goals. And, you know, and there I was kind of like, this is in the early 80s, like 81. And, you know, I was off to the races. This was great. But the whole, it seemed to me that the whole industry, all of my colleagues and, you know, people, it was crazy. I mean, people were drinking and drugging and, and being really rather wild. And it was, it was part of the fun. Hmm. I got my second DUI in 1984, in December of 84 at the parade of, you know, the parade of lights had kind of shut down downtown. And so I was downtown, you know, drinking. And on my way home, I was driving probably at 70 or 75 miles an hour down Corona. And an an off-duty cop pulls me over. And I'm thinking, what? You're off-duty. Can't you mind your own business? I was right Mm -hmm. there by King Soup. And, and, and what was the speed limit on that street? 30. Wow. All right. I had a fast car. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. of course I was drive fast. So you don't have a sports car so you can go 30 miles an hour, particularly when you're drunk. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was hauled off to Denver Cares, you know, spent the night there. And, you know, I the next morning, you know, my, I was then married. My husband picked me up and, and he said to me, you know, Mary, I'd really like to be mad at you, but the reality is it could have been me or any one of our friends that got picked up. And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> now I think who the hell was I hanging out with? <laughs> it's mm. just like a bunch of drugs. So, you know, after my second DUI, then that next you know, I thought, okay, this is really a problem. This is a problem. And my drinking is a problem. And so I thought, I didn't drink, basically, December, you know, and even into January. And then I was like, I made a deal with myself. 
okay, if you drink to blackout again, you've got to do something about this. You know, you have to, you've got to stop drinking. And, you know, however, it was like, okay, a couple months, you know, it, it was, I had another blackout, but I was at home. So I was like, okay, you know, um, that wasn't so bad. I mean, I didn't embarrass myself. I didn't tell anybody off. I just, you know, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't out thriving, so it wasn't so bad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then the next time I had a blackout, I had already justified the first one. So the second one was easier to justify. And that whole year of 1985, I, you know, I was white knuckling it. And at the same time, when I landed my job in commercial real estate, I had immediate success, and then the market fell apart in 1985. So not only was I trying to control my drinking in 1985, the market had totally, you know, disintegrated. So the great success I had had, you know, the prior year and the years before that, it was like, you know, I mean, suddenly the market was in the tank. And... So not only was I not, you know, making the money that I was, I was also trying to control my drinking. Mm-hmm. And in November, I went to a party with that a colleague was having. And his wife's mother was there. And she was probably in her mid to late 60s and very attractive, very well-dressed, very well-appointed. You know, she... She was, um, she had, it was a great looking package, so to speak, and an attractive older woman. And I happened to notice that if somebody was pouring her a drink and it was vodka, she put her finger on the bottom of the bottle and, and said, make it a stuff one, honey. And I had a moment's glimpse of, if you don't do something about your drinking, Mary, this is where, you, where you're going to end up. And because suddenly this attractive woman was very unattractive, hmm. sloppy. And, you know, that that party, though, I drank to blackout. I don't remember my, my husband left before me. Somebody took me home. I didn't remember how I got home. Um, it was, you know, just, again, that cycle of, you know, drinking to blackout, not being able to control my drinking. Once I started, I couldn't stop, nor did I want to stop. And, you know, it was just that, that whole thing. When I woke up Sunday morning, I had such a hideous hangover. But, of course, my thought always was, if the vodka hadn't been cheap, I wouldn't have had such a bad hangover. Hmm. It wasn't, of course, the amount that I drank. It was the purity of the booze. And, you know, I was just so hung over all day. My head was pounding. I remember this so clearly. And, and I wish I could have taken a machete to my neck just to stop the pounding. Mm. And, you know, I, on, on Monday I went to work and I thought, because I couldn't remember, I had blacked out at the party. I had a, kind of that last glimmer of who I had talked to in the end that I was kind of telling him unsolicited, you know, what you ought to be doing, right? That unsolicited advice from a drunk, mm-hmm. which is really fun. And 
And I remembered that, and then I just kind of, it, it just kind of blacked out from there. So I called the, you know, the, the hostess of the party on Monday, kind of with a lot of trepidation to kind of go, do I need to apologize for anything? You know, and so I thanked her for the party and said, I really hope I didn't do anything that embarrassed you or, you know, just, and she was like, oh, no, no, Mary, you were just fine. You know, you were fine. And what I realized is that she was so riveted on her mother being drunk that I could have probably run through that party naked and she would have thought it was just fine. Mm. And, and so that Monday, so now I'm Monday. So I just got off the phone with her and I'm like, yay, I had just gotten my get out of jail free card. Right. Mm -hmm. I hadn't done any, you know, it was like, okay. So denial once again could just slip right back in. And I had a good friend that had gotten sober maybe eight months before me. And we were going to have lunch that day. And so she called me and she said, hey, you, you were still on for lunch? And I said, yeah. And she said, look, you know, there's an AA meeting at the Trinity. Do you want to go over there? And, you know, you want to go to an AA meeting before we go to lunch? And I'm thinking to myself, fuck no. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> like no and 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 so that's my thought and instead I said okay and mm. we went over to that meeting at the Trinity and when it got to me because it was an open meeting I said well you know my name's Mary I'm just here to check things out and a few people later there was a guy that had a bow tie on and he said his name he's an alcoholic and then he looked straight at me and he said Sweetheart, normal drinkers don't think about checking us out. Mm. That somehow hit me right between the eyes. And I left that meeting. We went to lunch. I cried all the way through lunch because the reality is that somehow it hit me on, on a deeper level that the gig was up. And I have not had a drink since. Wow, that's powerful. Uh, amazing is what it is. It's miraculous. I I feel that I got tapped on the shoulder. And somehow I was able to stay sober. You know, I I know that in the very beginning First, I didn't tell my husband because I was sure that he was a drunk and he would sabotage me. Hmm. And in the very beginning, you know, I, you know, every waking moment that I wasn't actively doing something else on my way to work, I remember this distinctly. It was like a mantra. God, please don't let me drink today. Please don't let me drink today. And I had lunches set up with people that drank, right? Because that's, you know, I mean, I chose my companion's cheerfully and you know and I go please don't let me drink at lunch today please don't let me drink at lunch please don't let me drink after work god please don't let me drink and and I was at a mantra please just don't let me drink and I didn't even know enough about the program to to think that invoking god's help would be you know beneficial it was just all I could think to do and I was terrified that I was going to drink again 
I knew that I had this, I, I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew I was an alcoholic and I was terrified. When I came back from lunch, I called my parents. So my father, you know, was still sober. He went to a meeting still. He went his entire life. Um, and, you know, and I called him and, and said, you know, I'm an alcoholic. And my father said, you know, take it a day at a time. That's it just today. He said, keep, keep some candy, you know, in your desk, in your purse, at home. And I was like, why? Do you want me to get fat? And he said, no, alcohol has a lot of sugar in it. And part of that withdrawal or that craving is a sugar craving. So just just have have candy, you know, at hand. And whenever you feel that craving, just have a piece of candy. And and then he said, and choose a sponsor that has at least five years of sobriety because the first five years are very slippery. Hmm. That was his advice. And, you know, and in fact, I did keep candy close by or ice cream or that kind of thing. I lost 15 pounds. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's how much alcohol I was consuming. <laughs> wow. Holy. Yeah, exactly. It was in, absolutely insane. Um, you picked the right type my, of candy, obviously. <laughs> well, I guess. And I guess I didn't overindulge either, you know, but mm. still. You know, the it's been an incredible journey, an incredible journey. You know, the the program I've often said that every every baby that's born should be handed the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous because it's a absolutely divinely inspired way of living life well. And you know, if if everyone actually lived life according to the principles of this program, it would be an incredible place to live, an incredible world to live in. You know, I think that, you know, the the thing that was interesting, I didn't tell my husband. His father had been an alcoholic as well, and he was sober for 10 years, and then he stopped going to meetings and stopped, stopped hanging out with his sober friends, and within a, you know, he started drinking again, and then after 10 years, and then within a year of his beginning drinking, he died. He got a bad needle in, in a hospital in Turkey, and his liver couldn't fight it off, the infection. Wow. So he, he died. So in my own life, I can see very two very clear examples, even though I didn't know my husband's father. You know, my father stayed sober. He died with 35 years of sobriety. And... My husband's father, you know, was sober for 10 years, drank again, and was dead within a year. You know, I, you know, it's, this is a very, very simple program that if you work it, you get, I, my experience is that you're given a life that is really worth living, a life that you can be very proud of. And, you know, my husband actually was very supportive of my getting sober. Um, a very tricky guy. <laughs> and mm-hmm. eight, years, eight years after I got sober, our marriage imploded because he was white knuckling it. He was also an alcoholic, and then he got sober. So it was, you know, after that point, we had an, another 24 years of a marriage that was just what a great partnership and great relationship. So 
today, I will tell you that working these steps, you know, and you think about the miraculousness of it. You know, I mean, doing the fourth step, to me, the fourth, the fourth column of that fourth step was so important. It was the first, the first glimpse, the first time that I took responsibility for the things that had happened. Those, those resentments, what part I had to play in it. So taking, realizing it, admitting it, taking responsibility for it was the first path to forgiveness. You know, going through and also it was the first glimpse into my defects of character. You know, the, you know, the fifth step was very cathartic. I remember coming home after the fifth step and rounding the back of my car in the garage and kind of going, yes, I have a chance of staying sober. And, you know, the, you know, asking, becoming ready to have God remove my defects of character and then humbly asking. I do that every single day in my prayers. So today and every day, I go, God, please remove my defects of character, and I miss them. So they remain top of mind. So if I see them cropping up, I can, I can course correct, if you will. You know, going on to, you know, then making a list of people that I had harmed, making direct amends, you know, that's a humbling experience. And again, teaches one, he taught me to own up and take responsibility for my actions and to be able to start to really, you know, ask people to forgive me for, you know, my aberrant behavior and, you know, any harm that I had caused. The 10th step to me is, is one that was really a game changer because the 10th step is really how I began to truly amend the way I lived my life. You know, taking a daily inventory and seeing where my defects of character would crop up and immediately making amends for it. You know, it's, I like to describe it as, you know, that 10th step taught me to see myself coming. You know, I could, I could see where my behavior was going to go off the rails and I could course correct before I had to do, you know, before I did anything. And it amended the way that I conducted myself, the way that I viewed life, the way that I treated others, the way that I, and also as a result, felt about myself. You know, the, you know, 11th step is just simply, to me, you know, deepening my spiritual life, which is so incredibly enriching. And of course, the 12th step, the big bonus is working with others. What could be more rewarding? And, you know, so the, the life I had been given is just, I thank God every day for the life that I've been given. You know, to be able to be one of these lucky ones that got sober, you know, to have a life I can be proud of. I wasn't proud of the person I was when I was drinking. I was ashamed. And to be able to hit that do-over button. I mean, how many people get to do that? And now, 34 years later, I can look back and and cherish the life that I've had, cherish the relationship that I had with my husband, the relationship that I have with my kids, the relationship that I have with my friends, you know, to be so proud of and being a trailblazer in my career. 
and being so successful and, and just being able to have, you know, my, the clients that I serve to have been able to serve them well. And, you know, I, through Alcoholics Anonymous and getting sober, I can be really proud of the life that I have been given and the life that I've led. If I had still been drinking, this was perfect. Whenever, whenever I closed a big deal or, you know, won an award, you know, my mother would say, you know, Mary, I'm so proud of you. Just think where you would be if you were still drinking. Mm. What a great reminder. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And, and it was a wonderful thing to say. You know, it was a wonderful thing to say because it's so true. Had I not gotten sober, I would have never, never had the life that I have had and been so blessed with. Mm. So that's, that's really, you know, I do thank God every day for the life I've been given. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Um, Yeah. It's much better to hear. um, Imagine if you had not quit drinking versus Mary, imagine if you could just stop drinking, you know, because I heard that for a while. Yeah, if somebody had told me when I was drinking how amazing my life would be without booze, I would have said bullshit. (laughs) Not a chance. I couldn't admit when I was drinking, I could not imagine my life without drinking. You know, and so many, so many women that I have sponsored be like, my life is over. I'm never going to have fun again. The reality is, is that my sense of humor did not go away when I sobered up. My mischievousness did not go away when I sobered up. You know, it's, it's the harmful behavior that went away when I sobered up after I worked the steps. Mm. And, you know, life, you know, my personality, you know, the basic personality of having, having fun and, pulling pranks and, and just enjoying life did not go away. It just was enriched. Mm. And, you know, is it, if I wish that I had a magic wand and could, you know, just the people that suffer from, you know, this disease from alcoholism and addiction, I'd love to wave a magic wand and say, just look at what your life could be. Just look. And somehow that compulsion, which I understand, can be so overwhelming. That that's why so few of us are able to get sober and stay sober. And I'm in awe, in absolute awe, that I was one of those lucky ones. Wow. You had talked about that early in your life. You thought alcoholism was hereditary and that it had skipped you. You know, I didn't, um, you know, I didn't connect the dots necessarily. And it wasn't until I really admitted that I was an alcoholic that it became clear that, of course, you know, it applied to me. You Mm -hmm. know, and on my second DUI, I was, I was court ordered or I was going to be court ordered to go to therapy. So my attorney told me to. Um, you know, go to one of the court approved therapists. And I mean, this, this guy was great, but he wasn't an alcoholic. 
and alcoholics can just lie through their teeth. I mean, it's just, it's what we do. And this, he said to me on our first like intake session, he said, well, is anybody in your family an alcoholic? And I looked at him with a a total straight face and said, not that I'm aware of, (laughs) you know, and the real answer would have been, let's talk about who's not, we only have an hour, right? (laughs) You know, and, (laughs) you know, but of course that's not what I was going to say. And I, you know, it's often said, and it's true, it's my experience that you come in, when I came into AA, I was in a fog. I thought I was thinking clearly, but this denial piece of this disease is intense. It's intense. You know, I mean, I heard like, you know, well, once I started drinking, I didn't, you know, I couldn't stop. And I thought, well, that's not me because, you know, maybe three or four times I'd have one glass of wine and that was it. Mm. In my drink career, you know, it was told that one time that I only had one glass of wine and I didn't have more. See, I could stop. You hold on to these that wasn't me thing, you know, and Mm -hmm. it takes, you know, three months, six months before kind of the, the fog begins to lift and you go, Oh yeah, I started, Mm -hmm. I, I I didn't want to stop. I couldn't stop. You know, this really had me. It's like alcohol had a vice grip on my life, but Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it takes a while before you can really see how, how much of a vice grip it had on you. You also mentioned, and I just, you don't have to go too much into detail about it, but um, I was curious about when you did some time for drug smuggling. Um, <laughs> that Because I've met you before, and I'm like, no way. There's, it's crazy <laughs> to, to, to believe that. What, what happened that day when you got busted? And, and what was that like? How much time did you do, and did you get anything out of it? I didn't, I really didn't do, I mean, I was thrown into a minimum security prison. What happened was I was coming from Europe to Canada and I had false bottom suitcases with hash oil. And, you know, so, I mean, it was, I don't know if I had five or 10 kilos of hash oil in these suitcases. I mean, it wasn't like some kind of, you know, a whole hull of a ship, Hmm. right? Yeah. But my suitcases were, you know, like they they were detained because you had to, I didn't know I had to collect my suitcases in, um, I went from Belgium to um, London, then London on to uh, Vancouver. And you had to collect your suitcases. I didn't know you had to. And this hash and hash oil was in mylar bags in the false bottom suitcase. So because of the IRA, you know, the, the bombings and stuff, they would put, if you were not, you know, if you didn't collect your suitcase, then it went through a x-ray machine before it was then sent on. And when I landed in Vancouver, my suitcases weren't there. And I was like, what the hell? Three days later, my suitcases show up, right? And of course, at that point, they had the, um, the Rocky Mountain, Rocky Mountain, what is it? The RMCPs, you know, their Canadian, you know, police, the Rocky Mountain Canadian police were, you know, like 
had kind of staked out the airport waiting for me to pick up the suitcases. <laughs> and, you know, and so, of course, when I did, they let me get to the hotel room. And, you know, before they, I was going down the hall to meet with the drug dealer that I was selling this to. And, you know, I said, excuse me, miss. And I turn around and there are these, you know, five men. And they identify themselves and it's like, oh, God. Wow. And, yeah. And so at the time, I mean, what they didn't realize is that it was my money. It was my hash and hash oil. I wasn't just the runner. And and they, um, <laughs> so they wanted me just to turn into who the drug dealer was. And, and, you know, I really couldn't do that because I was the drug dealer on the other side. You know, I wasn't just an innocent runner. And so, you know, and what really turned it, I was, I had gotten married when I was 22 to this drug addict, heroin addict. And it was to shock the hell out of my parents who were, I grew up in a, a, with a privileged life. And I married somebody that was like, had lived in a cardboard box when he was 16 in the Bronx, you know, so it couldn't mm -hmm. have been more. 180 degrees from how I grew up. And, um, and so at, at the time, so they, they have me in this hotel room and the, the cincher was, is it was like, and I'm shaking like a leaf, right? I'm just, uh, I'm like, and they said, are you married? And I said, yes. And they said, this carries with it a seven year mandatory minimum. Do you think that your husband's going to wait for you until you get out? And that was the first glimpse of hope. I was like, no. I'll be free of him. Oh my God. That's hilarious. Prison, yay. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, they took me to, you know, like the County jail for the night. And then, you know, I mean, I got a phone call, which was, you know, I called actually my, uh, my brother. And what happened was, is that, you know, they had to go to my parents because they thought it was going to be a large bond, like $50,000. And they had, to, my parents were the ones with the money to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, because they had to post that bond, they couldn't, and if you don't post the bond before, you know, like the weekend, you go to a minimum security prison. So there I was from Friday until Monday. So I was just, I was there really, it was a weekend stint. But I, I had to go to solitaire. But all drug cases go to solitaire the, the first night of admission. And so the whole. And there were women there that were kind of screaming all night. You know, it was, and, you know, I thought to myself, God, how did you get here? Mm. You, used to, you used to know who you were. You know, who are you anyway? And it was a wake-up call, but certainly not you know, the wake up call that I needed and, you know, that I was 22. Mm. So it was 13 years later before I got sober. I learned not to smuggle drugs from that experience, mm. but, <laughs> yeah. and also to, and also to divorce my derelict husband. But other than that, no. Mm. <laughs> 1985, yeah. you mentioned you had a, a lot of white knuckling, a whole year of white knuckling in 85. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. do you remember how you made it through that first year? Well, 
you know, it was, I wasn't sober until November. I mean, I tried to white knuckle it, but I drank, mm. you know, that white knuckling doesn't work. Mm. You know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I white knuckled it for a month and then I was like, okay, if you just don't drink to blackout, you know, then I did, you know, I started mm-hmm. to drink again. I blacked out and then I was like, okay, reel it back in, you know, reel it back in. But so I didn't, I wasn't sober in 80, you know, like the year of 85. Mm-hmm. I got sober November 3rd of 1985. So I had basically 11 months of trying to control my drinking. Mm, and it didn't work. No, not even remotely close. Yeah. If you could talk to day one, Mary, and give her a piece of advice, what do you think you'd say? Stick around for the miracle. I think that I would say just don't drink today. Just today. Don't mm-hmm. worry about tomorrow. Just not today. Don't think about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is say, that's it. And if I, I remember in that first, you know, those first couple months and even that first year, that it was, you know, just if I thought that I would never be able to drink again and I entertained that thought, I don't know that I could have made it. It was just today, mm. just today. And and there were those times where in that first year where it was like a uh, drink would be really good, you know, and, you know, and I got through it. I mean, one time I got through it by stopping and getting a ice cream sandwich um, you know, another time it was, I, I thought it through, we were camping and I thought it would be so good to get drunk right now. And I thought it through to the next morning, waking up in that tent when it was hot and having cotton mouth and a pounding headache and how awful I would feel. And there was another time we were in vacation in Mexico and I was like, Oh God, I would love to have one of those drinks in the pineapple or the coconut. You know, they'd look so good. Truth is, I'd never had any of those. I, you know, too much, you know, there were too many calories in those. I'd go straight for the vodka and soda mm-hmm. or, you know, that kind of thing, rum and Diet Coke. And, you know, and I remember thinking, you know, that would be, and I even said to Sherman, my husband, God, that you know, those drinks look so good, hoping he'd say, oh, we're on vacation, go ahead. <laughs> and instead he said, well, why don't you call your dad first? Wow. <laughs> like, what a fucking buzzkill that was. No <laughs> doubt. <laughs> and yet that night we went to dinner and it was this nice restaurant with, this, you know, like those rattan fan back chairs. And, you know, and I was, sitting and there was a guy and his wife that came in and he was clearly loaded, just loaded. And he, they sat down again in those, you know, big band backed, you know, rattan chairs. And he passed out before his dinner even came. And I looked at him and I was like, that's a God shot. Because when my husband and I had been in Hawaii and we were at a really nice restaurant with those same kind of chairs, I passed out before dinner even came. Mm. And so there this guy was that I was looking straight at. It was a mirror of how I drank and, and what I looked like when I drank. Passed out with my spouse sitting in the other chair having dinner by himself. 
And you didn't blame the chair. I didn't blame the chair. Not at all. Because it <laughs> it's the same chair type. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, it's been wonderful. It's been a pleasure to hear your story. Thank you for doing this. Um, Thank you for me too. It's it's a pleasure to tell my story, and it's a great um, a great reminder and affirmation of you know life's over. Yeah. Any final words for oh. our listeners? One day at a time. You know, stick around for the miracle. Life is going to be so. If you do this, your life will be better than you could have ever imagined. Thank you, Mary, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. And thank you, listeners, for checking us out on episode 16 of the Recovery Edgecast. Remember that you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or at recoveryedgecast.com. And we'll see you next time.